Welcome to the Book Club Interview with your host, Scott Hollister, a show that empowers you to discover your best self through a deep understanding and review of books dedicated to self-improvement and business. All right, welcome to the Book Club Interview. My name is Scott Hollister, your host. Today's guest is Cameron Harold, who wrote Vivid Vision. Cameron, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Scott, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for your time. Really appreciate that as well. So before we get started, you want to tell listeners a little bit more about yourself and where you came from? Wow. Um, sure. So I was groomed as an entrepreneur. I was raised uh, to be entrepreneurial by my dad. He raised my brother and sister and I all to be entrepreneurs. And we all kind of grew up looking at jobs as a bad deal and wanting to really control our time um, and really realized that by having or running our own companies, we would control our free time. So that was that was kind of the venture. I think I had about 15 different entrepreneurial companies by the time I graduated high school. I had my first real business with 12 full-time employees when I was in second year university, um, ran a business for three of my four years in university. And then when I finished university, I got involved in a company called College Pro Painters. And I was uh, running the kind of half of Ontario in Canada for them and then opened up the West Coast of the United States for College Pro back in uh, 1994. I opened Washington and Oregon for them. I hired Kimball Musk to be one of my franchisees. I also hired his brother, Peter Reeve, who built Solar City to be one of my franchisees. So it was kind of early stage uh, in the entrepreneurial space. And also, I guess by the time I was 28, I'd coached 120 entrepreneurs. So I've been coaching and mentoring entrepreneurs now for 30 years. Um, when I left College Pro Painters, I got involved in a collision repair chain. We built that up to what is now the largest collision repair chain in North America. Uh, I left right as we were taking the company public and I became president of a private currency company, kind of like what Bitcoin is doing today. We did it 20 years ago, uh, sold that company to a U.S. publicly traded company. And then I joined a, a small business. I was the 14th employee of a company called 1-800-GOT-JUNK. And mm -hmm. I came in as their chief operating officer and I grew that brand uh, up to about 3,100 employees when I left system-wide. Uh, we went from about 2 million to 106 million in revenue and we were operating in 330 cities, 46 states, four countries. Um, when I left there uh, 12 years ago now, 12 and a half years ago, I left 1-800-GOT-JUNK, started coaching entrepreneurs and CEOs and their executive teams globally. Um, so I've coached, I don't even know what the number is now, but roughly about 100 real entrepreneurial companies, typically 50 to 500 employees is my, my zone. Um, and I've now written five books. I wrote Double Double. The Miracle Morning for Entrepreneurs. I co-authored that with Hal Elrod. I also uh, wrote a book called Vivid Vision, one called Free PR, and another called Meeting Suck that is written for every employee at every company to read. And then three years ago, I started something called the COO Alliance. So I started the only network of its kind in the world for the second in command. So that's kind of a one-minute helicopter tour in my bio. That's it? You sure? <laughs> Quite the resume. That's amazing. So going back, so how important was it to have you mentioned your father. So that father figure, um, and what did he do growing up and how, how were you able to, to kind of learn from him? I think both my, both my parents, my mom and dad both grew up in entrepreneurial environments. Uh, both of their, my, my mom's parents, uh, my grandpa and grandmother owned a hunting and fishing resort together that they built and ran and operated a very famous one back in Northern Ontario. They'd had all the Detroit car guys would go up and, and hunt and fish out of their resort um, so I kind of grew up in that entrepreneurial environment with them. Um, and they were, you know, big into traveling and doing trade shows and doing marketing and 
print campaigns back in the 50s and 60s. And then my, my dad's dad was the CEO of a pharmaceutical company. So he built up a big pharmaceutical company, opened up Canada for them. Um, so again, part of that kind of expansion growth mindset mm. on his side. And my dad uh, probably was 25 or 26 years old when he opened his first business. So he, um, you know, pretty much had always, he went to, to school for dentistry and mm. I think he just knew he'd hate dentistry. And um you know, went in and became an entrepreneur and off he went. So I've always kind of grown up in that world, never really knew um, jobs per se. You know, I've had jobs where I was the second in command, but for some reason I always felt like the entrepreneur or part of that entrepreneurial team. Um, but for the last 13 years, really been running it on my own. That's amazing. I think that's part of the divide with, you know, you know, you have your normal, you know, W2 employee, maybe they grew up with a family that's just normal. How do you, take that leap you know if you have if you don't have that you know someone to look up to 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 take the risk and jump into creating your own business or a role more of your you know trading your time for equity maybe on the back end yeah i think again i was i was really shown i remember i was about 15 years old 16 years old my dad took me to our golf club and we went to play golf on a wednesday at about 12 o'clock and he was pointing to all these people walking in. He's like, that guy owns a car dealership and that guy owns a clothing store and she owns a clothing company and this guy owns this. And it's like, okay, cool. And we, we went off and played golf and finished 18 holes. And we were sitting on the balcony about four o'clock and I was eating my fries and gravy and drinking my cherry Coke. And I was walk, looking out at the area where people were walking in to start playing golf at four 30. And my dad started pointing people and he goes, he's a teacher. He's a doctor. He's a lawyer. He's an engineer. He works for the car dealership. He's like, do you remember the difference between what the people who played golf at 12 o'clock were doing? I said, yeah, the people playing at 12 o'clock ran their own business. And I said, yeah, my dad said that people who run their own company control their time. And he said, that's why you want to be an entrepreneur is so that you can play golf in the middle of the day and hang out with your kids. And I remember hearing that at such a young age and realizing that we always had my parents present. You know, my dad, even though he ran his own business or grandparents, they always seemed to be present. Um, you know, they were around us, they were doing stuff, they were engaged in things. And th there was money, but there were also lots of tough times. I remember growing up as a kid, we, you know, we weren't very well off when my dad was running his first two businesses for a long time. My mom made all of our clothes and cut our hair and made all of our food. And I remember my dad often saying, you know, we were going out for dinner as a treat. Like it was always a treat to go out for dinner, whereas nowadays you go out for dinner, it's almost a treat to cook dinner. Mm -hmm. um, so I grew up recognizing that being an entrepreneur was, was hard work. And I also grew up in an era where being an entrepreneur was not cool, right? That nowadays being an entrepreneur is really cool and it's fun and go for it. It's all the dot-com stuff. Well, that was only cool 20 years ago. 1998, 99 is when the first era of being an entrepreneur was cool. Prior to that, it was vilified. So when mm -hmm. I was in school, we were picked on and excluded and told that we were capitalistic and profit-centric and greedy and um, nobody, not even family really liked the entrepreneurial kids in our family. No kidding. Wow. Very, very different from today. Yeah. So if it was like that in the beginning, how were you able to stick with it, you know, over time? I think I was, I was naturally tenacious naturally, and but my dad also put us into all of these little things that kind of showed us the entrepreneurial traits, right? He showed us how to go door to door to sell things. So I had four or five little things that I used to go door to door on and I learned how to handle objections and how to ask for the order and how to deal with rejection and how to try to upsell and how to negotiate all from going door to door. Mm -hmm. um, 
I, I remember, um, you know, cold calling and cold calling out of the yellow pages and phoning dry cleaners when I was seven years old to get them to buy coat hangers from me because they paid a recycling fee back in those days for coat hangers. So I was negotiating and I wanted four cents and they only wanted to pay me three cents. And I got them to pay me three and a half. And, and the guy, the guy was going, how old are you? And I'm like, I'm seven. He's like, like, cause I remember in his mind, he's like, where did you even come up with the idea of three and a half cents? But I'm like, it split the difference. Like I just understood that from pushing a little bit more. And my dad taught us at a young age that if the other side makes the deal with you, they still made money. So just learn to keep pushing, you know? So all of those traits that I think I have today are things that I learned at a young age and, and maybe were groomed, but I was also very ADD and bipolar and um, kind of had that natural tenacity and leadership as well. Mm-hmm. That, made, that made good entrepreneurs. Yeah. That's great. So that brings you up to, you know, writing those phenomenal books. And the reason I want to uh, kind of talk about vivid vision, I think it's just so important that you have that clarity, right? Because if you don't have that end goal in mind, then you, any road works. So yeah, it's, it's the old saying from the Cheshire Cat, if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. Um, so or any road will work. So most entrepreneurs simply wake up in the morning or most humans wake up in the morning just being busy working hard but they're not necessarily driving towards some greater vision that they have for their life or for their business. So what I think of as a vivid vision is leaning out three years into the future, kind of going out to December 31st, three years from now, and looking at what your company looks like and describing it as if you were walking around your business, you know, describing operations, describing IT, describing marketing and sales, describing your meeting rhythms and the company culture and the employee feelings like describing what it looks and acts like and feels like to be an employee in that or a customer in that zone. And when you can feel all of that, um, then you can figure out how to, to share that with everyone so they can figure out how to make it come true. Yeah. That was one of the biggest things that popped out me in the beginning of your book was that exercise, you know, you know, imagine something that you want, you know, it could be a dream house, could be your car. You loved your whole life, you know, pretend you ha- have it. How's it feel? What's it look like? And then you're like, that's a pretty clear vision, isn't it? And it's, mm-hmm. that's what you need to do for your company. I, I love that. That was a phenomenal yeah. exercise. And what's really cool about it is when everyone can see what you can see, they'll help conspire to make that come true. But if they can't see what you can see, then, they really can't kind of make decisions with that level of instinct that you think you've got. You know, most entrepreneurs feel that they have a strong leadership intuition, but the reality is their intuition is no stronger than anybody else. It's just that they're the only ones who really see the vision. But if everyone can see the vision you can see, then they'd be able to have that same level of intuition that you would have. Mm -hmm. So what do you recommend for someone that is trying to still their mind, we have a lot going on, million little things that are, what recommendations do you have to sit down, get clarity and write those thoughts out? I don't do enough of this at all. Um, I think some of it is, are you talking about crafting a vivid vision or just stilling your mind like on a daily basis? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's a, a couple to both, but let's go with the, the vivid vision. Like that's the most important thing I think is just that clarity. And then back in. So, yeah. So if you're looking to craft a vivid vision, the best place to do it is not at your office, not at your desk and not on a laptop. It's really to get out of your office, go sit somewhere where you're inspired, somewhere around nature 
you know, go for a walk and sit by a lake or by the ocean, go up in the mountains, uh, go to the beach, go, go even sit in a lobby of a five-star hotel by the fireplace and take a notepad and a note, you know, a pen with you and start mind mapping and journaling about what the future looks like. Um, so I'll give you an example on my personal life. When I was thinking about how do I want to be as a person in three years, I thought about how do I want my family life to be, my relationships with my friends, my relationship with a girlfriend, my relationship with my parents, um, how do I want my fitness level to be, what do I want my eating habits to be like, my activities, what am I doing for fun? And I tried to describe as many of those things as I could without figuring out how I would make it happen, but starting to just think about that so that I ended up with about a three or four page description of what I looked like, act like, and felt like three years from now. When I start sharing that with people, they can now see what I want my life to look like and how it looks. And they start nudging me back in that direction, holding me accountable to it, um, you know, helping make decisions towards that, et cetera. Mm-hmm. How big is that accountability piece? Um, I think the accountability piece can be huge. You know, I noticed it years ago where a friend of mine showed up at, um, you know, in Vancouver where I'm living. I live half time in Vancouver and part time in Scottsdale, Arizona. And a friend of mine showed up in Vancouver. He's like, hey, I saw that you don't want to go for drinks with people. Would you want to go for a hike with me? And I'm like, yeah, that'd be cool. He goes, or we could go for a run in the morning. I'm like, yeah, let's go for a run. Then I realized, wow, interesting. Like here's another business guy who normally would say, do you want to get together for lunch or a drink? And he read my vivid vision that said that I really want to do more activities like play tennis, go for you know golf, go for hikes, go for runs, go skiing with, with other business people. So saying yes to going for a run with him was easier than saying yes to go for a drink with somebody else. Well said. And, and that had to happen because, you know, years ago when I was building 1-800-GOT-JUNK, I was the second in command for 1-800-GOT-JUNK. And, you know, my best friend and I grew it together. He was the founder and CEO six and a half years working together, we'd never skied together once. And I didn't realize until after building his company with them, he was my best man at my wedding before then. I didn't even know he skied. I mean, how is it possible that we didn't know the other person skied? Hmm. You know, he knew that I did, but he'd taken this pause on skiing. That's kind of sad that you, you know, can, can, um, can be so focused on work so myopic that you miss what's really important in life. Hmm. Any things that you've learned in the past to take that step away from working so much in the business? Um, well, it, it just gives you the the ability to come back in and focus on the right things in the business, right? So when you take pause and you get away and you craft the vision of what you're looking for, when you come back in, you have a lot of clarity on two areas, one on what to do, and then second area of what not to do. You know, we all have our to-do list, but what about our stop doing list? What about the list of all the things that we do day to day that aren't either adding value or driving revenue or driving margin, you know, that aren't moving the business forward? How do we say no to more of those things and say yes to the things that are going to drive us towards that vision that are going to get that flywheel turning. So momentum creates more momentum. Mm. What are some of your favorite things on your do not do list? Um, um, Don't drink red wine on planes anymore because it's shitty red wine. I wouldn't drink it. (laughs) Am I drinking it on a plane? Um, not work weekends, you know, not, not working on weekends or at nights, just really, you know, shutting it down at five thirty, six o'clock so I can disconnect and make dinner and relax. I used to work at night five nights a week, um, trying to catch up, but the reality is I'll never catch up. 
you know, you're never going to get it done because as soon as you catch up, you set more goals for yourself. So it just becomes a lie of what you're avoiding. So that would be something. Um, attending conferences where I don't get the trifecta. Hmm. The trifecta for me is that I learn and get ideas on how to grow my company or my clients' companies because I coach CEOs. Or second, that I get to hang out with current clients. So I, I have to go to events where I've got some current clients there because I like fitting in a little bit better that way and I get to spend some time with them, which leverages our relationship and drives more lifetime value for me with them. And then third is going to conferences or events where I can gain clients without really trying to gain clients. You know, where I, I'm seen as both an attendee but a mentor at the same time. So I like a bit of a balance of not just being the dumbest guy in the room so I can keep learning, but kind of like towards the middle where I can learn and teach, you know, because then I really get that full, I get a higher ROI. And, and I only have three inputs, people, time, and money. So if I'm going to be at a conference, how do I get the highest return on my time and the highest return on my dollar? It's really from that trifecta. So that that came from saying no to some events where just the wrong fit. Mm. I also won't do work for government. I won't do work for um, nonprofits. You know, they, they're just not the right, the right fit for me. My zone that I work really best in is the entrepreneurial space. Mm. You know, the companies in the the million to $500 million range that that's my zone. That's great. That's extremely clear. So once you've recommended someone that has sat down, really got their vivid vision, how do you bridge that gap from where we are now to that big, hairy, audacious goal? Yeah. So the, the BHAG by Jim Collins, he popularized that term, the BHAG, the big, hairy, audacious goal is supposed to be that, 30-year stretch of something you're going to drive towards that from the outside world seems impossible and from the inside world seems plausible. Um, the best example I still think has ever been created is Microsoft's BHAG of putting a computer on every desktop. They later abridged that to a computer on every desk and in every household. What was cool about their big, hairy, audacious goal is Microsoft never made computers. So their big, hairy, audacious goal was if they created this amazing software that people wanted and had to be on computers, people would need to have these computers with their software on it on every desk and in every household. You know, or um, Nike's BHAG from the, from the early 70s was crush Adidas, <laughs> right? I think we've gotten lost and so many people now, they're putting their BHAG as like a million customers or a million of this. That's not what a BHAG is. A, a BHAG is less measurable it's more of that that thirty year march that you're going to be constantly driving towards, um, and I like that. So my BHAG is to replace vision statements with vivid visions worldwide, right? Because I just know that the one sentence vision statement that we all mashed up our favorite words and came up with one sentence go team that really doesn't align anybody. It was a corporate bullshit piece that we didn't have anything better. So I'm going to keep driving towards that, which means introducing it to more companies, talking about it in my speaking events, writing books on it, doing videos about it, doing podcasts about it, talking to the media about it. And I was published in the physical print edition of Forbes magazine three years ago, a full one-page article in the magazine itself on the Vivid Vision concept. So my BHAG will be to drive towards that, whereas my Vivid Vision is building out those systems that are always driving towards that BHAG as well. And then my core purpose is helping entrepreneurs make their dreams happen. So if I think of like 
my business is a jigsaw puzzle. The four corners of my jigsaw puzzle are the core purpose, the beehive, the big hairy audacious goal, um, my, my core values and my vivid vision. What's a good place to start if someone's just starting out on the front side of their business? It's really to sit down and ask, like, why, why are you doing this? Why are you starting the business? I'm really kind of asking yourself that core question of, like, why am I going to get out of bed every morning to do this? That's the first starting point. The second place is to be ruthlessly honest with yourself and saying, is there a market for it? Right? Will people buy what I'm creating? Um, I learned that lesson years ago in India. I was in India about 10 years ago meeting with a group of entrepreneurs and he said, North Americans are stupid. North Americans come up with an idea for a product and they spend all their time trying to market it to somebody and they try to create all these features and benefits to sell something that nobody really needs. And I said, okay, well, what's your product? He said, I sell oil. And I'm like, what kind of oil? He said, I sell cooking oil. And I'm like, all right, where do you sell it? And he goes, well, I'm $300 million worth of cooking oil. I'm like, holy shit, like how many countries are you in? He goes, no, I'm only in like six states of India. I'm like, you're kidding. He goes, oh, in North America, you only use one tablespoon of oil a day. In India, we use a quart. So he realized there's such a massive market to buy this stuff that he decided to sell that stuff to them. And then he uses his money and his time that his entrepreneurial world has given him. His entrepreneurial venture gave him the money and the time to then pursue his passion. But he didn't kind of go the opposite direction. So I think that would be the starting point as well as why are you doing what you're doing? Is it consistent with that core purpose that drives you? And then is there a market for it that you can fit products or services into that market niche and then market to it? Mm-hmm. You know, the old, one of my dad's adages early on in life was the answer is yes. What are you buying? Like I'll sell it to you if you're buying it. <laughs> I love that. So Creating our vivid vision. Why pick three years out? If you go, if you go any further out, like five years out, it's so far out there that people can't really attach to it. They don't, there's no real urgency to it. It can always be pushed off another year, it seems. So it seems to be too far out. Uh, it's kind of like you fall over. And if it's too close to you, if it's only one year out, it's too similar to what today looks like. There's no real stress or strain or stretch to create anything different. It's too similar to what you have now. So it's not inspiring. So three years seem to be about the, you know, the good stretch. It's kind of like an athlete who, you know, if you run a six minute mile, your goal shouldn't be in four years to run a four minute mile. It's probably not doable. Uh, but maybe your goal is like a 515 or a 510 or a 450. So you kind of decide what your stretch can be that you're going to drive towards. And if you get there early, great, reset. Uh, but if you set a goal that's too unachievable, um, you know, like, like a 12-year-old that says, my goal is to be in the Olympics in four years, you probably won't be when you're 16, maybe when you're 20, right? So it's having a goal that is a good enough stretch for the three years that you can march towards that's reasonable, but also is a big stretch. Now, when you work in coach uh, students as well. So how would you break that down? Are you going into yearly goals, quarterly goals as well? Yeah. So you start looking at your vivid vision, thinking of it like building a house for a second. If you're building a home, you'd have the foundation, then you put up the walls, then you put in the electrical and the plumbing, then you put in the drywall. Every entrepreneur wants to put up the the beautiful cabinets and the wolf stove on the first day, but we got to build the foundation first. So some parts of your vivid vision will happen in the first year. 
some parts will happen in the second year, some parts will happen in the third year. So it's kind of taking the sections of it that are foundational. For me, those are core values, core purpose, your BHAG and your vivid vision, making sure those are locked deep into the company. Mm-hmm. And then it's working on all the people systems. So the recruiting, interviewing, selection, training, onboarding, you know, the leadership development, the golden handcuffs, the, that section is really important. And then it's all the strategic thinking, the, the goal setting, the planning systems, and then all your meeting rhythms, right? Your, your annual quarterlies, one-on-one financial meetings, coaching meetings, your daily huddles, and then it's the financial systems. And I think a lot of times entrepreneurs work on the wrong stuff in the wrong order, right? If you don't have, you don't have revenue, don't worry about your accounting yet. If you don't have you know, revenue yet, why are you worried about running a daily huddle? If you don't have a strong core value set, don't worry about recruiting. You got, I was coaching a CEO recently who was all about recruiting and interviewing, recruiting and interviewing. I'm like, you got to get rid of some of the shitty people you have first. When you get rid of those shitty people that have a really bad culture fit that aren't getting any results, you'll free up room for your A players. Your A players will be more attracted to the work environment and you'll send a signal out to all of your solid Bs that it's time to step up a little bit and they will, right? They'll rally. So it's, it's really approaching it like that. You know, why hang up our cabinets if the foundation is just shaky? Hmm. I love that. So what are some common pitfalls you notice when coaching CEOs besides those points? Um, one is, the, is their confidence, that they don't do enough to protect their confidence, that they get shaken when it's tough or shaken when it's, you know, they're not sure or shaken when the results aren't there. And it's hard as an entrepreneur to keep your confidence up when, when the market or the economy or your customers are saying no or your team is quitting or you're running out of cash. So I think it's really working to protect their confidence is the first one. Um, secondly, is to really stay focused. Like a lot of, especially the entrepreneurial companies and big companies can, can get distracted by the big shiny objects. And it takes a long time to get to the night before you become the overnight success story of that. Just staying focused, listening to your customer, listening to your suppliers and really grinding it and driving and driving and driving. People give up a little early. Um, so mm-hmm. protecting your confidence, protecting your focus and then putting in the effort or really actually cranking it out. I think a lot, especially early stage, um, it's really hard for somebody to, to quit a job and become an early stage entrepreneur because they think it's easier than it's going to be. And it's tough to put in that effort. But when they do, when they do stick with it after three months, six months, stuff starts to happen a little bit, right? The ducks start to align a little bit more in your favor and people start to know more and, and you just start to get a little bit of that traction. Um, or you, That's great. Or, what are some of your tips? Yeah. yeah. Sorry about that. So what are some of your tips to keep that confidence or to protect it? Spend time with other entrepreneurs who have been there. Mm-hmm. Spend time with other entrepreneurs who have been there. Be vulnerable and share where you're struggling so other people can help you. I think when you try to have your game face on and pretend that you've got it all together all the time, nobody steps up to help. But if they see that you're struggling and being open and honest about it, they want to help because they were helped. God, like I've struggled so many times in business, I've lost count. So my, my innate ability is when I see somebody struggling, I see them like the fly trying to get out the window. I just want to show them there's a door right here. But I always turn to people to say, I don't know what the hell I'm doing and try to listen and, and gain advice. And I still fuck things up. So that would be one, surrounding yourself with other entrepreneurs, being open and vulnerable. Um, and then also coming up with your core goals for the quarter, what you're focusing on and letting people know you're doing that so they can conspire to help you. That's great. It's also, 
this sounds so much easier when I say it than it is to actually put it in place too. Of course. Yeah. But that's, that's a benefit of having education, being able to point at books and having coach and support staff and accountability. Well, and I think if you, if, if you remember that when you're really clear on where you're going, the books and the support staff will start to line up for you, right? That when you're really, really clear on where you're going, you'll start understanding what information to read and to learn from, what masterminds to be involved in, what podcasts to listen to. Um, because you, again, you're clear on where you're going. The, the learning will start to line up for you as well. Hmm. I've noticed that when I've read a book, probably two years in between, and I'm taking notes again, I look at my pre- previous notes and I'm like, well, I didn't take that from the first time around. The What's cool about it, when you go back through and read, like if you read Good to Great as your company, so that's probably the wrong book for an entrepreneurial world. But um, yeah, whatever book you read, the student controls the learning environment. So when your mind isn't ready to learn, you're not going to learn. A year from now, you read the same book. You've, been, you've had a number of other things go wrong, another set of opportunities in front of you. All of a sudden, that same set of information is like, oh, that's interesting now. Hmm. You know, it's like a kid in school who's learning about, you know, interest rates and mortgages that they're bored to tears. And then all of a sudden they're buying their first house and they're like, shit, I need to learn about interest rates and mortgages. Well said. What are some of your favorite books of all time? Business or personal? Business. Favorite business books of all time. I'm going to actually give you personal because I'm going to be a pain in the ass. I think too many, I think too many business people read too many business books and don't do anything with them anyway. Um, and it causes a lot of extra stress and strain on themselves. It creates a to-do list of things they're not going to get done and distractions for things that they're probably not supposed to be focusing on. So I'm going to give you a couple of books that everybody should read for fun. Read the book Endurance. It's about Ernest Shackleton exploring the Antarctic a hundred years ago. It's a true story. It's turned into a really great leadership book because of all, but it's just an amazing, and my grandfather who ran the hunting and fishing resort was a voracious reader. He said it was his number one book of all time. So I would read, I would read that. Um, and then I would read the agony and the ecstasy about uh, Michelangelo by Irving Stone. It's about Michelangelo's life as a, an artist and architect and a designer and an engineer and a, um, his political savviness, like, unbelievable renaissance man and just a fascinating story and i think you can learn a lot just from that but also i think for entrepreneurs sometimes we need to get off the grid a little bit instead of trying to learn constantly sometimes it's just allowing your brain to shut down Hmm. what if what are some of your favorite things to do to have your brain shut down any vacations cabins in the woods Uh, i'm on vacation constantly i do 10 weeks vacation every year i took five and a half weeks off this summer went to europe I completely disconnected, didn't do any coaching calls. I actually flew back from Zurich to Boston to speak at MIT and then turned, turned around and went back 36 hours later. Uh, but the rest of the five and a half weeks I was off. I'm going to Tofino on Vancouver Island on Thursday afternoon for four days just to, to go retreat, unplug. I'm actually going to use it as a planning retreat to think about my goals and stuff for next year and some work I'm doing. Mm-hmm. I'm going over to Europe to a music festival called Beat Patrol. Uh, just outside of Vienna. So I'm going over to listen to some EDM later in October for a week, go over to Croatia. Um, so I take a lot of vacation time. Um, hiking for me is a big one just to get off the grid and go get outside in nature and hike. And then I've got two kids that are 16 and 18. So a lot of activities with them, skiing with them, 
Good. Cooking. I love at the end of the day to go and, you know, go to the grocery store, pick up some, some food and come back and actually make dinner. I love doing that as well. Great. Well, it's got to hear before we wrap things up, uh, where can we find out more about you and the best place to purchase your books? You know, all, of, all of my books, all five of my books are available on Amazon, Audible, and iTunes. I, I would get a hard copy of, uh, of all of them, frankly. But if you have employees, every employee should read the book Meeting Suck. And that's kind of like a $12, $15 investment. If, you, if you're not going to spend 15 bucks on employees, you shouldn't have them. So that's where you get all the books. And then CameronHerald.com is my main website that has you know, all the information. It's got videos of my sport uh, for speaking events that you can download and watch for free as well. Uh, so some free learning there for people too. Well, I appreciate that. And Cameron, thank you so much for your time today. Really enjoyed our interview. Hey, you're welcome, Scott. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening to this show of the book club interview with your host, Scott Hollister. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a review and subscribe and we'll catch you next time on the book club interview.